Hi, you're listening to iiPod, the official podcast of the Duke Lemur Center in Durham, North Carolina. I'm Matt Bortz, Curator of Fossils at the Duke Lemur Center. And I'm Megan McGrath, Education Programs Manager at the Duke Lemur Center. Hi, Matt. Hey, Megan. So, what are we talking about today? So, we are getting ready to launch our second season of iiPod. And even though it's called iiPod... It's, it's all about lemurs. And so the way that we do this is we want to have different seasons that focus on different species. And for this season, we are focusing on ringtail lemurs. I mean, we could call them the poster child. We can call them the OG lemur. I mean, they are just what anyone thinks of pretty much around the world when they think of lemurs. Let's talk about not just why they're the image, but what that image is. We're talking about an animal that's the size of a kind of large cat, has a pointed nose. They have a kind of grayish brown body, some black and white facial markings and ears, and then these beautiful black and white striped tails or ringed tails that are often seen in the shape of kind of a question mark as they're walking around on all fours. Uh, They do spend a lot of time on the ground, so that's typically the posture that you expect from seeing them. Or you can see them kind of curled up in these adorable lemur balls or lemur huddles where there's several of them all together, these gray little bodies huddled together, and then these little stripes of black and white kind of going over their shoulders and kind of striped throughout them. So they are really iconic. They are the lemur we think of. If you see an outline, even just a a black outline of what a lemur looks like, it's usually a ring-tailed lemur. Not just for us. They're often on symbols in Madagascar and other parts of the world. They were even on some of the currency in Madagascar historically as well. And that association between Madagascar and ring-tailed lemurs goes way, way back. Like in the 17th century, when the first Western scientists first started exploring the fauna of Madagascar, some of the first reports to Europe about things that were being found there were of these ash-colored striped-tailed creatures that eventually made their way to Carl Linnaeus, the researcher in Sweden responsible for the, the whole scientific name thing. Before Linnaeus and his scheme, naming animals was kind of chaotic. Like, every language had different names for different creatures and different ways that you clumped those animals together. Of course, in Madagascar, there were names for the ring-tailed lemur, including Maki and Hira, But in 1758, Linnaeus gives it the Latin name Lemurcata. Sometimes people call these Linnaean species names like Lemurcata, Homo sapiens, Tyrannosaurus rex, scientific names. So within the Tree of Life, using these Linnaean or scientific naming conventions, ringtail lemurs are in the family called Lemuridae. And that idae part at the end of the word indicates to scientists that we're talking about a biological family, a group of animals that are all more closely related to each other than they are to other animals. So in general, the oldest name in the family gives its name to the entire family. So because Lemurcata was named in 1758 before any other species, the whole family gets called Lemuridae. There are about 21 species of lemurs that are in the family Lemuridae. Lemuridae includes the rough lemur, the bamboo lemurs, and the genus U lemur, which has a lot of species. Things like the blue-eyed black lemur and the red-bellied lemur and the crowned lemur, among many others. So if a lemur species is in the family Lemuridae, it means that they're more closely related to Lemurcata, or ringtails, than they are to things that aren't in the family Lemuridae. While the ringtail lemur is the species that we tend to compare all other lemurs to, it actually has some traits that set it apart from many of its fellow lemurs. One of these traits is what enables it to live so well in human care at zoos and at the Duke Lemur Center, 
it's adaptability. That adaptability is something we see a lot in the ringtail lemurs. They don't like living around humans very much, but they can thrive and live surprisingly well in habitats that are altered by human activity in a way that other lemurs are not necessarily as able to adapt to, or they're able to slightly shift their previous habitats that they've been known to live in. And so, interestingly, if you're talking about ring-tailed lemurs living in, say, a higher elevation region versus lemurs that live in a dry deciduous forest versus lemurs that are living spiny, you know, arid forest habitat, you're actually kind of talking about slightly different adaptations in terms of their behavior, in terms of the diet that they're consuming. So even amongst the ring-tailed lemurs, we don't necessarily see all the same facts about all of the same ring-tailed lemurs living in Madagascar. But there are definitely challenges to caring for them, which is why we'll definitely be interviewing some folks who work directly with the ring-tailed lemurs later on to hear more about it. But I find it really interesting that you can see a direct comparison of their adaptability and their care at the lemur center. They're the one lemur that we let hang outside when it's below 41 degrees. That's our cutoff for every other lemur as a general rule. But the ring-tailed lemurs can go down to 36 degrees because they can exist at those higher elevations. They're a little hardier than their relatives. And so... Even amongst the dozen species we have at the lemur center, they are an exception to a rule. They do get to go outdoors in kind of different conditions than our other species would get to. We can compare this adaptability to a North American mammal that also has a ring tail, the raccoon. If there is something besides a ring tail that ring tail lemurs share with raccoons, it is an incredible ability to adapt to very stressful and different environments. In fact, the DLC in Durham, North Carolina, sometimes gets calls where someone sees what they think is a ringtail lemur's escaped, but it's a raccoon. And so if you're going out to Madagascar and you want to go spotting lemurs, the spot of Madagascar that you want to focus on for your ringtail lemur spotting is going to be in the southern part of the island. And as we talked about before, Madagascar is a hugely diverse place when it comes to kind of microclimates and microecosystems. So the southern part of Madagascar in general is a relatively dry place where there could be some very, very low rainfall during some drought seasons. But there's a lot of variation within that. And so ringtails live mostly in the southern part of the island. But across that southern part of the island, there's lots of different kind of microclimates and microecosystems that they're able to just thrive in, uh, which is really remarkable because many other species of lemurs are very specific in the kinds of places that they like to live and are very sensitive to variations in climate and temperature humidity that say like, nope, this is my home. I live in this kind of forest and this forest only. Ringtails are like, eh, this will work. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, I think, absolutely factors into why they're kind of ubiquitous lemur that you see in so many captive settings in zoos everywhere because they say, meh. This will work to a lot of situations, including captive settings. Um, and it also means that their diet can be very flexible. Some of the habitat they can live in is called the spiny desert. And so that doesn't sound like a great place to spend much time at all. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And it's really hard for us to give you a comparison of what this is because you probably are thinking like, oh, desert, cacti, right? No, <laughs> there are not cacti or cactuses in that area. But there is kind of alien-looking plants that eh, to us would look a lot like a cactus. Things like like acacia types of trees that are just very harsh-looking, not the most inviting to grip and grab onto unless you have tiny adaptable lemur hands. There's cactus that's been introduced to parts of Madagascar that apparently ringtails like to eat 
That's a very good point. So in Madagascar, it's a tropical area. Lots of plants have been introduced and done really well. And a great example of ringtail adaptability is now eating some of the cactus that has been introduced. (laughs) Which just, as far as taking spiny desert to like its very obvious conclusion, like they really thrive in this goofy setting. In general, primates love a tree. And humans are kind of weird for not loving a tree as much as the rest of our our cousins do. And within lemurs, everybody loves a tree. But of everybody, the one you're most likely to see on the ground is going to be a ringtail lemur. Ringtail lemurs also are diurnal, which means... They are primarily active during the day, although interestingly, as we were researching this episode, I did read up a little bit and find out that there are some populations of ringtail lemur that are considered to possibly be more cathemeral when an animal can swap. They basically can decide based on the factors around them and the seasonality to either be nocturnal or diurnal. They may spend their whole life being diurnal or their whole life being nocturnal, or they might swap between seasons if they would like to, which is something I didn't realize about ringtail lemurs before researching for this episode. So we're all learning today. (laughs) And then we get what makes them even more adaptable, their social complexity. As humans, we have language and really good eyes that help us communicate with each other. But lemurs live in a world of olfaction that is smell. They use their noses to communicate, and they are really good at it. Part of communicating in any lemur troop is a lot of scent marking. Lemurs have glands on different parts of their bodies, specifically adapted for laying down scents in the world around them and signaling to each other. And scent marking seems to work really well for ring-tailed lemurs. Absolutely. And a comparison you can make is that as we are growing up, we learn how to use language. Lemurs don't have this, and so they learn to read scent communication, and they instinctively have quite a bit, but they learn quite a bit as well from their troops. And basically, what would smell just kind of stinky to us if we just went right up close to it would actually give them all kinds of information, right? Like, is this a male or a female lemur? Do I know this lemur? Is this multiple lemurs who have marked this spot? Have I smelled this smell before? Is this lemur reproductively receptive? Are they young? Are they old? Are they potentially injured? There's so much that we're still learning that they can communicate with each other about each other using just the smells that they leave around them. Ring-tailed lemurs have what might possibly be one of my favorite scientifically accurate terms in the literature, which is stink fighting, which is a way that males will compete with each other. Um, But I think it's important to note that we're only going to be talking here about female-to-female competition or male-to-male competition, because between males and females in ring-tailed lemur troops, there literally is no competition. Females are always going to be the dominant group. Even your lowest-ranking female is going to be above the highest-ranking male. But in terms of male competition, they've got a few fun things they do, including stink fighting, which involves pulling their tail in front of them, rubbing it with scent glands they have on their shoulders and on their forearms, and then squeaking in a very loud and intimidating way and waving their tails over their heads, and the stinkiest lemur generally defends their turf, attracts the female. There's a lot of communication, olfactory communication going on between lemurs, but one of the under-talked-about things that male ring-tailed lemurs will do to compete with each other is also these kind of jumping competitions where they will leap very high vertically into the air to show off for females, but they will also, as they come down, kind of slash with their canines towards each other. Lemurs, in general, have really flat, sharp little canines, but especially prominent on a ring-tailed lemur, and so 
that can be a way of them kind of displaying during the breeding season in particular um, to try and compete for the female's attention, which is really important because unlike many other lemur species, ring-tailed lemurs are not even a little bit monogamous. Like, they don't even try to pretend that they are. Uh, It is very much females breed with whichever males she would like, very often multiple males during the breeding season. And the breeding season is is not a season. It's kind of a funny word that we use when we talk about this for animals. It's like a season, it sounds like all through the spring, like, or all through the fall, but like, there's a very narrow window we're talking about for these animals. Yeah, absolutely. And the window is the narrowest when we talk about actual, like, ovulation and receptivity to breeding, but it's usually, you know, a few weeks to maybe a couple months total of kind of this buildup where you'll see physiological changes in the animals, you'll see a lot of behavioral changes. Tensions will absolutely ramp up between individual members of the troop, um, and then it'll all culminate with breeding activity, and then you're pretty much done for the rest of the year. So it's not even as long as one of our traditional seasons. It's actually a pretty short window overall. This all culminates, of course, in baby season. After a gestational period of about four and a half months, ring-tailed lemur moms tend to give birth to one or two infants at a time. They are more likely to have twins than some of the other lemur species, but that tendency often follows genetic lines, kind of like it does in humans. Like other lemurs of their size, ring-tailed lemur infants tend to stick really close to mom for the first year or two of their lives, but as they grow up and gain more independence, you will definitely see mom teaching them more and more about her dominance in the troop and getting them to fall in line. We've talked a lot about olfactory communication. Of course, that's really important to them. We've talked about how it's their equivalent of eyesight, right? But they still have eyesight, right? They still can produce sound. They just don't have the complicated language that we do. Ring-tailed lemurs have been recorded doing all kinds of vocalizations, and they have kind of subtle differences in meaning. One that we hear quite a bit, I call it kind of a clucking noise. That's definitely not the technical term for it, but it's kind of a... (laughs) noise they make when they're moving around or they're slightly unsure of something around them. There's the contact call, which is rumored to be part of the reason they might have gotten the name lemur cata, because it sounds a bit like a meow. It's kind of a soft kind of a noise that they do when they can't find each other. And then um, they have their very loud alarm call that they do that can range from just kind of a, it sounds a bit like they're imitating a wolf, kind of a kind of a noise, all the way up to a very shrieky, almost metallic sound that I will not be imitating for all of our sakes on this. Um, So they have quite a few different vocalizations that they do as well. And of course, behavior. They're going to read each other's behavior all the time. There are submissive shrieks or squawks that they'll kind of do as well. Um, But those get much more complicated and rely on a lot of visual cues as well for them to be able to interpret and us to try to interpret as well, although we can't totally be in their brains. And while we can't get into their brains, we've been able to learn a lot about the social interactions of ring-tailed lemurs over the decades of observation, both in captivity here at the Lemur Center and in Madagascar. Because they spend time on the ground out during the day, it's it's relatively easy to observe them and all of their social complexities that go with them. They're special for living in large groups. The troops that ring-tailed lemurs live in can be upwards of 20 individuals living together. Even more than that, they've actually been observed being even over 30 individuals, but I think our average is more around the mid-20s range. Um, And of course, with any social grouping, the general rule is the larger the group gets, the more you're going to see kind of fission and fusion changes, which means groups splitting apart, groups kind of melding together, and those usually follow matrilineal lines. So you're usually going to follow with the dominant female, and basically the female with the most offspring is going to be, especially the most female offspring, 
female lemurs are the the real power currency, of course, in lemur troops, particularly ringtail lemur troops. And so you're going to see, as groups get a little too huge, you're usually going to see a split form somewhere. And that split is not always peaceful with these animals. Yeah, and tracking all of that social dynamism. If you have a lot of individuals living together, that's a lot of social relationships to maintain. That's a lot of social relationships to track of. And there's different ways that these animals will kind of figure out the hierarchy within that group. Essentially, like, who gets to hang out with who and who gets to eat when are all things that, in animals that can't talk it out, are things that have to be displayed and things that sometimes you get slapped away from. These social relationships continue throughout a ringtail lemur's life. So, Megan, how long do ringtail lemurs live in the first place? And is there a difference between how long they live in captivity and, and how they how long they live in the wild? In terms of lifespan, ringtail lemurs are one of the longer-ish lived species since they're kind of of the medium size. So in the wild, depending on the region, they can be expected to live to 15 to 20 years. I've even heard anecdotally from some researchers of populations that have higher ages if they're in a nice protected reserve area. Um, in captivity at places like the lemur center, who are doing our best to take care of them as well as possible with as natural of conditions as possible and great veterinary care, we've had ring-tailed lemurs get up into their late 20s very regularly. We've even said, had some that have reached their early 30s, um, some of whom actually were still free-ranging in their early 30s. All these really happy geriatric ring-tailed lemurs. <laughs> oh man, they're, they're the best. Geriatric animals are where it's at, by the way. <laughs> Everybody focuses on the babies, but geriatric ones are where it's at. And you don't often get to interact with them in the wild because they encounter all kinds of issues that just would take them out in the wild. You can't have, you know, fully rotting teeth or not be able to defend your turf or have a limp when you're trying to move around and follow your, your troop in the wild, especially when you live in a cutthroat, female-dominant, ring-tailed lemur troop that is surviving in pretty harsh conditions and is gotta keep on moving and keep surviving together. We've said they're really numerous in zoos in the United States and other parts of the world. How are they doing in the wild? They're doing eh. <laughs> they are compared to some other species of lemur, they are doing relatively well. All lemurs are doing very poorly. The IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, is the governing body in charge of basically, is this thing endangered? Is this thing threatened? And kind of determining like the degrees of, like basically the proximity to extinction for different animals. And for a long time, ringtails were not considered terribly endangered. Recently, that's been reevaluated as the various habitats and populations have been assessed and relatively recently, and with some controversy, mm-hmm. ringtail lemurs were finally labeled endangered. They are endangered, but their population is decreasing. So they are on the trend towards critically endangered. And they were listed as one of the top 25 most endangered primates. And like you said, there was a bit of controversy around this. Um, and there's a couple reasons for that. One is... It is never an exact science getting a population estimate on any of these animals. It's not like we can have them all line up and, you know, take a number and do a census of the ring-tailed lemurs. And the other is that the status of these animals and how endangered they are then determines a lot of really important things, like how much funding is devoted to conserving these animals, how much time and effort is put into securing a future for, say, ring-tailed lemurs versus some of the other even more endangered species of lemurs. And so the people who study and conserve these animals get understandably very passionate about this. And one argument that's been made is there is evidence that in the last couple of decades, their numbers have dwindled. And because they are so hardy and so good at surviving in stressed environments that might have been changed by human activity, 
the fact that ringtail lemurs are not doing as well as they once were is really an indicator for how endangered lemurs are in general. Like ecosystems on a larger scale in Madagascar are threatened. Um, so we've given you an introduction to these animals, but as we have professed many a time, we are not the experts on all of the subjects along these animals. So we're going to be interviewing some other folks who have expertise in fun other areas like the changes in the southern parts of Madagascar. Basically, like what has the environment and the ecosystem of Madagascar looked like in the past, especially in the regions where we find ringtails. We're also going to be talking to some folks who do research um, and work with the lemurs at the lemur center, both in animal care in terms of their um, behavior and physiology, their veterinary care, lots of interesting topics there. We're going to be going into the microscopic world of a ringtail lemur and get into the microbiome and kind of the structures that and the organisms that help a ringtail be as successful as it is in its harsh environments. Absolutely. And very importantly, we're going to be speaking with an amazing researcher who has been studying ringtail lemurs in their native habitat in her home country of Madagascar for decades. We're really excited about all of the folks that we're going to be interviewing and all of the things we're going to learn together. So we hope you'll join us for the rest of our second season of iiPod. Thanks for joining us on this Duke Lemur Center journey. Subscribe and discover more episodes each season. We look forward to sharing more about the Duke Lemur Center with you soon. And in the meantime, follow us on social media and visit us at lemur.duke.edu. A special thanks to Julie Bortz, who edited this episode. And thank you, and goodbye for now. From Matt. And Megan. And all the primates at the Duke Lemur Center. Duke Lemur Center.